Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Jonathan Steinberg on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Bismarck, A Life. Shortly before the beginning of World War I, the German sociologist Max Weber puzzled over the question of the role of personality in history. He was sure that there was a kind of authority that rested on character itself. And he called this kind of authority charismatic. The charismatic leader is not like everybody else. The charismatic leader is special, a kind of force of nature, a political demiurge. The charismatic leader creates, by force of personality, order out of chaos. According to Jonathan Steinberg, Weber may have had Otto von Bismarck in mind when he defined charismatic authority. The thesis of Steinberg's terrific book is that Bismarck's achievements and some of his failures can largely be chalked up to the force of his personality, his charisma. Again and again, Steinberg finds Bismarck's contemporaries attesting to the fact that he really wasn't like everyone else. He was smarter and wittier and more cunning, more temperamental, and in most ways, larger than life. Bismarck made things happen. And I have to say that it's a compelling case, but it also gives rise to a thought, at least in my mind, because Bismarck wasn't the first charismatic leader in modern German history. Frederick the Great preceded Bismarck and Hitler followed. I don't know what this means. I will leave it to you to ponder that question. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Uh, How are you today? I'm extremely well because I'm talking to you. (laughs) That's very nice of you to say. Today we're talking with Jonathan Steinberg about his terrific new book, Bismarck, A Life. I read this book cover to cover. I have to tell you that it is uh, masterful in many ways. The thing I most appreciated about it, and I, I hope that um, that Jonathan will uh, uh, talk a little bit about this, is that there's the occasional um, aside in the book. I guess I would call it an aside where uh, Jonathan relates uh, Bismarck to um, not exactly contemporary affairs, but affairs that have occurred in the last, let's say, century. And I particularly like that. It's kind of unusual. Um, if you were a graduate student and did that, you'd get your hand slapped. But I think we can uh, be very happy that Jonathan has done it. There are a few lines that are really, really kind of breathtaking in that way, where he says something that happened in the 19th century is really quite related to something that happened today and got me thinking. So I, I, I really appreciated that, and I hope we can talk about that kind of stylistic moment. But before we do any of that, Jonathan, I'd like you to say a few words about yourself. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a New Yorker originally. And as somebody said, life is what happens to you when you're making other plans. And I was making other plans, and I got drafted into the army in the late 50s. And I got sent to Germany, where I learned German. And then I thought, oh, good, I'm going to be a big banker, and I will have a great career. But I have the kind of natural foresight which allowed me to turn down the German desk at the International Monetary Fund because, <laughs> because there was no future in the organization. <laughs> so that's how I became an academic. Yeah, right. And I got a PhD, and here I sit. Yeah, that's good. Now, you've, uh, you've written a lot of books. Do you want to mention any of them or just want to pass over those in silence? I, I, I don't. Well, one of the things that I'm afraid I'm guilty of is I have no fixed academic address. Uh, when I tell you what I've written, you'll see. My first book was on the birth of the German battle fleet, why they had a navy. Then I wrote a book called Why Switzerland, which is now 35 years in print, and why there's a Switzerland and why anybody else should care. <laughs> then I wrote a book comparing Italy and Germany during the Second World War called All or Nothing. Then I did the Deutsche Bank's gold trans actions in the Second World War, and here I am talking about Bismarck. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, your eclecticism is something that I very much admire, and it's some, somewhat rare. I don't mean to cast aspersions on any of uh, our colleagues, but I, I don't see it very often, but I, I did appreciate it. Now, let me um, begin talking about the book by asking a question which I mentioned in the, um, in the pre-interview, and that was, uh, h- how did you come to, to write this book? And I, I want you to talk particularly about the decision to write a book about a man that has had, well, to put it mildly, a lot written about him. He certainly has, and he wrote a lot himself. Um, there, there are two questions there. One is, how did I come to 
write the book. In the deepest sense, it goes back to literally the first lectures I gave as a very junior research fellow in Cambridge in the 1960s. And I remember at the time looking at Bismarck and looking at one or two of the pictures that often associate Bismarck, associate with Bismarck in the typical textbook. And there was a picture of Albrecht von Rohn, the general. And I thought, what was this guy's relationship to Bismarck? And I remember actually thinking that. And over the years, I thought about who were Bismarck's friends and allies. I'd read a lot about Bismarck, but it never occurred to me that I would ever write a biography because for my generation, biography was something very unserious, done by amateurs, and was frowned upon in the profession. We learned structural, functional ways of analyzing things, and that was scientific. In the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, biography suddenly became more interesting because the social sciences had done a pretty poor job of predicting what was going to happen. And they were all discredited, I think, by the collapse of socialism and the whole of the Eastern Bloc. Mm -hmm. And then we had the end of history by Fukuyama and people began to read biography. And what is more important, serious distinguished historians started to write it. So you had Ian Kershaw's terrific biography of Hitler, which is a truly great book and a great book morally. You had Richard Bosworth's fascinating book on Mussolini. You had Paul Preston on Franco. And then, for my money, one of the most remarkable biographical achievements ever is Robert Carroll's book on Lyndon Johnson. Book, he's four volumes, we're at five now on Lyndon Johnson. So serious academic historians had turned to biography. And I, as always... I come around the, the weird way. Um, I was minding my own business after a lecture, and a young woman came up to me and said, hello, I'm from the teaching company. Do you know what that is? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, um, I liked what I heard today. Would you like to come and audition? I thought, why not? So I went to Chantilly, Virginia, and they auditioned me. And I did a 30-minute biography on Frederick the Great, whom I absolutely adore. is one of the most interesting people who ever lived. Next to Bismarck, I think the second most interesting. And they liked it. So I told them, instead of recycling my standard European history lectures, I would try an experiment. I would write 35 little biographies plus a, an introduction of um, European history from 1715 to 1914. And then I had to choose 35 people to write biographies about. And of course, Bismarck was one of my very earliest choices. But then I had to have so many people from different countries. And I thought, I've got to have somebody from Spain. So I did Goya, about who, whom I knew nothing but learned fast. And I learned how to do 30 minutes biography. And that really attracted me. I thought, this is a very, very interesting way of thinking about history. So that's how I got to the biography. The second question is, I think, very easily answered. Yes, it is true that there are a lot of biographies of Bismarck. But I have to say there hasn't actually been a recent biography of Bismarck, and not a big one, for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I ask a completely different question. My question is this, how did he do it? Mm -hmm. If you read the three volumes, masterly biography by Otto Flanze, or the huge two volumes by Ernst Engelberg, or the great two volumes by Lothar Gall, or A.J.P. Taylor's rather superficial but witty biography, they asked, what did he do? And what was his effect on history? By now, we know what he did, and we know what his effect was, but we don't know how he did it. And it struck me, the more I thought about this, that this is a terrific way of doing biography. Bismarck was never a soldier, or at least he, well, he was basically a draft dodger, um, which was hushed up when the official documents were printed. He served briefly in a in a, a reserve unit, but like the National Guard, but he was no soldier. He was a lawyer by profession. He hadn't gone to cadet school. He didn't do any of the conventional things that a person from his class would have done. So there's that. Um, he could not give an order to a soldier, to any soldier, could do anything. He had no mass party. He never made a big speech in public until he was retired and, and an icon. Uh, so he had none. He wasn't a charismatic speaker either. He was actually a rather hesitant speaker. So here's this guy, very large, very prepossessing, with none of the usual prerequisites for becoming a great success. How did he do it? Therefore, is this okay if I go on no, talking like this? No, that's great. You keep going. Yeah. So what I then thought was, how could one do this? And then I discovered a really interesting fact, historically important fact. If you ask a new question about a well-known subject, the answers are amazing. And what I realized was that nobody had ever actually asked this question before. How did he do it? And it rapidly became clear to me that he did it by the power of his personality. He had a commanding personality. People who were in his presence when he was on form, and that included some of the most famous people in Europe, were absolutely mesmerized by him. They said they were bewitched, and these are their words, bewitched, enchanted, 
diverted, delighted, hypnotized, mesmerized, and so on. Even Disraeli, who God knows was one of the great charmers of all time, sat silently smoking, which he hated, in order to keep, to keep Bismarck company, listening to Bismarck talk. And he, he wrote to uh, one of his confidants, Sybil Bedford, he said, it's amazing. Bismarck writes, Bismarck talks the way Montaigne writes, and that's pretty high praise. So there that, that was that. And then gradually I came to realize that there were these wonderful sources that nobody had used. I took a book out of the Cambridge University Library, uh, The Life of Heinrich von Kleist Retzo, not a household word. But little Hans was Bismarck's closest friend in his late 20s and 30s. They shared an apartment in uh, in Berlin, in which uh, there were bed bugs in Heinz's bed, but not in Otto's. And he said, I probably don't taste as good as Heinz does. So they lived together. The book was published in 1907. And when I took it out, nobody had ever even looked at it. So I had this, basically this field to myself. And there were more and more and more of them. There was Hildegard von Spitzenberg, a beautiful society lady, who with her husband, the Württemberg ambassador to Prussia, moved into 77 Wilhelmstrasse. And so she lived, so to speak, in and out of the Bismarck household. And because she was a great diarist, every time she went to see him, she took, took notes any, every day about her life. She wrote down what she'd heard and seen. There was Christoph Tiedemann, who was the first personal assistant that Bismarck ever had. And he was a wonderful diarist. There's one entry in which um, uh, he describes the whole diary entry is just the menu, the four or five main courses they had. And as he said, we eat here until the walls burst. And gradually a picture of this guy began to emerge. And of course, you get it also in his own letters. Um, he's a in his early 20s, and he says to his older brother, don't tell the parents the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. It's much better to lie to them. And I gradually, I began to realize, I know this guy. And that's when I felt I could write the biography. So it's a different kind of biography from uh, those that you find in, in other, in other uh, books. And one final comment to your question about the, the contemporary comments. I teach that way, and it's second nature. I always say, and I think this is methodologically correct, the past begins when somebody in the present thinks about it. That's history. It's thinking about the past. And so my habit is always to compare things to the present. And when Oxford um, rang me up in, in December of 2009, and much to my relief, offered a contract because I was having trouble selling the book, um, Timothy Bent, a wonderful editor, was very hesitant on the phone. And I said to him, I know what you're thinking. He said, what? I said, you're thinking this book is too long. And it was a silence. And he says, well, he's a bit fat. And I said, how much would you like off? 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 words? And there was a silence at, at the end of the line. And he said, would you do that? I said, not only will I do it, I will do it gladly and in a month. After all, I said, if Bismarck, under the care of Ernst Schrenninger, could lose 50 pounds in six months, I can lose 50,000 words in a month. And so I did. And most of the references to the present have ended up on the cutting room oh. floor. Oh, that's sort of disappointing to me, at least. I like them, you know. I like them, too. But uh, what I thought was it's much more important to have Bismarck than Jonathan Steinberg. Yeah. So cut me and save the space for him. Yeah, I don't know, Jonathan. You're a pretty interesting guy. I, could, I've no, I haven't known you very long, but uh, you're, you're pretty interesting. So, um, but, but they're still in there, those, those comments about the presence, so readers should look for them. They're good. Let's begin talking about uh, Bismarck. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the book, and I especially like the title, I love plain spoken things. Um, <laughs> Bismarck, born Prussian, and what that meant. Yeah, <laughs> that's just a great title. What, what does it mean? What, what's what is Prussia? Where's Prussia? What is it? And yeah. what does it mean that he was born there? Oh, it means a tremendous amount. He was born on April Fool's Day, eighteen fifteen. And he was born literally at the moment when two worlds were changing. The world of the French Revolution was coming to an end at the Congress of Vienna, and the long 19th century was about to begin. And he was born a member of a very special social class. I guess what you have to think about is here is this not very rich, not very distinguished, uh, middle-sized feudal principality called Brandenburg, and the elector of Brandenburg, the Margrave of Brandenburg, in 1640 was a very smart young man. And he had watched the Thirty Years' War march over his territory and destroy it. And he'd been in exile in Holland. And he came back with a very simple idea. And it said, it's something like this. Um, policy is good. 
but your own forces are better. What he meant was he was going to have a standing army. Now, this may seem obvious to us, but it was not in 1640. In 1640, what a prince did was to hire the next nearest um, band of, th of thugs and send them out to attack your enemy, because if you had them at home, they'd ruin you too. And F Frederick William said, right, I'm going to have a standing army, and a standing army means that you have to pay them, and having to pay them means that you have to have taxes, and meaning taxes, you have to have tax collectors. So in effect, the Prussian state grew out of the need for an army, because this medium-sized little state, known as the Emperor's Sandbox, because its soil wasn't very good, did not have natural frontiers. Mm -hmm. And here there is a reference, I think, which is useful. The only country I can think of today which has the same problem is Israel. Yeah. In Israel, no natural frontiers, surrounded by enemies, and everybody's a soldier. And in Israeli politics, if you want to be a dove, you better be a three-star general. <laughs> so in other words, what happens to countries like this, and it's happened in Israel tremendously, disastrously in my view, they get militarized. Yeah. And you have to beat other people by showing how tough you are. Yeah. What happened in Prussia was more or less the same. A relatively poor relatively undistinguished, not not uh, tremendously grand nobility, um, gave up their feudal rights, their parliaments, and all that kind of stuff that caused the English Civil War. They gave it up for good in exchange for a deal. And the deal was that they would monopolize the army, and they would monopolize the civil, the civil service, and the king would protect them. Under Frederick the Great, that became a deal. He said, it is the chief job of the monarch to protect the nobility. And what that meant was you had families like the Kleists and the Witzlebens. I think the Kleists lost 150 uh, Kleist members in the Seven Years' War uh, in the 18th century. Witzlebens went from the Middle Ages up to the plot against Hitler. And Joop uh, Erwin von Witzleben was hanged on a butcher hook by Hitler after the plot to kill Hitler because Hitler wanted to see the agony of an old Junker field marshal. So this, these families, the Moltkes, the Bismarcks, the von Witzlebens, the von Alvensleben, the von der Ostens are all soldiers. Now, that gives to a society a tremendous character. Um, when somebody would say to him, wo hat er gedient? Where did he serve? There isn't any question what service meant, which regiment. And I think the thing that gave me the great single pleasure in the whole book was the bit where I quoted my favorite German novel, which is called Irrungen Wirrungen, Errors and Miscalculations, which is a wonderful story based in Bismarck's time by the Jane Austen of German letters. And by the way, listeners, if you want to find a wonderful new novelist to read, Theodore Fontana, F-O-N-T-A-N-E is it. And there are some of his best stuff is translated, including the little book I'm talking about. And this is an enchanting story of one of these young Junker cadets. He's a lieutenant in a good guards regiment, and he falls in love with a girl whose parents own a flower shop. That is not standesgemäß. That's not what you're supposed to do if you're a baron, Boto um, von Rienegger. You're not supposed to do that. So he has an uncle, fierce old uncle, who is coming to see him, to sort him out. And he's terrified, of course. So as he's walking to the restaurant, he meets a guy from a dragoon guards regiment and said, goodness sake, come along with me as a diversion. So they go to the restaurant and they're one minute late and, and the uncle is already tapping his watch because lateness doesn't happen in this a Prussian circle, and they go, and the young lieutenant from the Dragoons decides to keep the subject going and prevent Uncle Karl Anton from quiz quizzing his friend. And he happens to mention Bismarck, whereupon the old Junker goes red in the face and proceeds to let loose with a tirade about what an awful person Bismarck is. So I thought, this is the kind of living Prussianism which you need to know. And then the second thing, which is very interesting for American listeners, is that after the Napoleonic War, a very large number of the most important members of this family, including Crown Prince Frederick, who later on became King Frederick William IV, became converts to what we in America call born-again Christianity. They were evangelicals. And they, they said mass out in the fields, and they did away with frivolity, and they lived the sort of puritanical, pious life of the early Christians. Now, Bismarck, who was anything but that, was notorious for his drinking, his crazy horse racing, um, his wild views, and so on. But he came into their circle 
And he met and fell in love with a beautiful, a very Christian, aristocratic young woman who died at the age of 26. And clearly, he loved her. And had she not been his best friend's fiance, had he married her, I do not think Bismarck of history would have occurred. I really don't. Um, she died and he was desolate, but he got to meet all these people. And they took one look at this smart, witty, cynical, clever, six foot four inch giant of a man. And they thought, we need him. And he, of course, convinced them. And I think with Bismarck, you never know that he too had been converted. He then married Marie's best friend, Johanna, who came from a really pious home. And she'd never been anywhere. She had no, fri she had no frivolous habits, didn't dress well, didn't travel, didn't spend money on anything that was, you know, remotely worldly. The only thing she did well was play the piano. And so he, as it were, converted to this uh, sect of very powerful, very important, very upper class, born again Christians. And there were two brothers. Is this okay if I go no, on babbling no, like this? This is a great story. Please go ahead. Okay. There were two brothers, Ernst Ludwig and Leopold von Gerlach, both deeply evangelical. One was a colonel in the army, and one was the most brilliant uh, judge in one of the eastern judicial districts. And Ernst had surrounded himself with smart young lawyers and smart young government uh, officials, and he quizzed them and taught them and trained them. And he molded them into a kind of evangelical Christian phalanx. In the meantime, his brother, Leopold, had become ever closer to the crown prince. And when the crown prince became king in 1840, Leopold moved into the palace as his military aide. And every day, Leopold had tea and biscuits, cookies with the king privately. And it's the law of um, it's the law of monarchy and of the American presidency that proximity is everything. Um, and that's the struggle in the White House for what's called rug space. <laughs> the nearer you are, the nearer you are to the Oval Office, the better you are. Remember Pat Buchanan? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Pat Buchanan, when Reagan went to the White House in 1981, got an office which had been, I think, a broom closet. <laughs> And somebody said to him, Pat, you haven't got a window in this office. He said, what do you mean window? I'm between the Oval Office and the president's bedroom. I, I am close to the president. The office building across the road is the equivalent of Siberia. In this world, proximity is everything. So Leopold von Gerlach had real power. And Bismarck, after the revolution of 1848, uh, became somebody they could use because he was a brilliant speaker. He was very witty. And he didn't care how many people he provoked. Mm -hmm. So he became the kind of sword of the extreme right-wing, evangelical, upper-class conservatives who didn't want to lose their privileges. And that's basically how he made his career. Mm -hmm. And how did he um, – well, let me ask a question about his, his background. Would it have been ordinary for an ambitious young man uh, like Bismarck to have gone uh, directly uh, to a um, some sort of military academy and then on to – Service Was that the ordinary way in which one made a career in this class? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is little Hans didn't do it either, although he was a Kleist. And for a Kleist not to do this, the Kleists were much grander than the Bismarcks, who were, you know, okay, but not, not top class. He didn't do it, and he had a huge row with his father. All Kleists are soldiers, without exception. There's a wonderful story of Frederick the Great on one of his terrifying rides. And he's riding past some gentleman's house, and he says... Whose house is that? That's Herr von Kleist. Which Herr von Kleist, says Frederick. <laughs> and of course, the answer is, was it the Frederick, was it the von Kleist in the first, in the first foot guards or the one in the cavalry, you know, because they were all in these regiments. And at the battle of Sedan, um, Molke, the great general Molke, who was also one of these people, uh, has a list of the commanding officers of all the regiments. And without exception, they all come from these families. So from the 1640s, really to 1945, this class governed Germany. Mm -hmm. And that's what it meant to be Prussian. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So it was an unusual choice for Bismarck. Bismarck uh, gets gains proximity to the, the crown. Um, how, how does he enter? Uh, I guess he's already entered political life in a way, but what is his... Uh, his first kind of official position, and how does that affect his later career? Can I go back and um, correct one thing? You certainly can. The choice is not Bismarck's. The choice is his remarkable mother's, Wilhelmina Mencken. And here I think I am the first biographer to have noticed how important it is to understand her biography. Have you got a second for me to tell you about her? Yes, I'd like to hear about her. Okay. Wilhelmina Mencken 
was the daughter of Anastasis Ludwig Mencken, a very clever, very ambitious bourgeois from a small German town who went to London in his 20s to make his fortune. And because he was clever and charming and very witty and a disciple of the Enlightenment, he rose fairly rapidly in the civil service of Frederick the Great. When Frederick the Great died in 1786, he passed over to Frederick uh, William II. Then the French Revolution broke out. And Anastasius Mencken had a reputation of being too radical, possibly a Jacobin, a bit like a communist, you know, after, after the, the Second World War. He had a bad reputation, so he's kicked out of the civil service, but he had enough money because he had married rich, and he has a salon where people come and go. He meets a young man called Friedrich Gens. And if I may mention my great patron, Henry Kissinger, who deigned to notice my book and, so to speak, changed my life by, by getting it to sell, Gens is looking around for how to get up the greasy pole. And he reads Burke, Reflections on the Revolutions in France. And first he doesn't like it. And then after the terror, he, th he thinks, hmm, this will sell. So he translates it and it, it does, does indeed sell. So the king notices him, and he gets a job in the civil service, and he looks around the civil service to see who is the, the coming man, and it's Anastasius Mencken, Bismarck's grandfather. And sure enough, in 1797, when Frederick William III takes the throne, Anastasius Mencken becomes, in effect, White House Chief of Staff. He is, and here's another one of these ghastly references, he's the Ram Emanuel of Frederick William III. And Gens goes up the greasy pole with him. Wilhelmina Mencken, born in 1789, is 10 in, 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 um, in 1799, and she's 12 when her wonderful father falls ill and dies of uh, a rare disease which is not, which is not um, diagnosed. As one of Bismarck's female cousins said, poor, poor Wilhelmina, no fun and no money. So she then is trapped in Berlin without a prospect. And here, all of your readers who are Jane Austen fans will know what happened next. She's like Jane and Emma. She's a gentlewoman with no prospects. So what do you do? You get in contact with the first passing marriageable person. So she marries Ferdinand von Bismarck, who's 20 years older, who is the dumbest of the four Bismarck brothers. He's the kind of guy who goes out and taps the barometer to make sure it's working, that kind of guy. And so she spends her, her, um, her the most blooming years of her life in a remote, dusty um, country farm, and her ambitions is, are, are on her children. And she, it is, who decides that Bismarck will not go to cadet school, who will not behave like the, all, the others. He will go to gymnasium like a middle-class boy, and he will go to university to become a lawyer. So she makes him, and he hates her for it. He hates everything about her. He hates her coldness. And I think that's one of the most important things in his character. He really does have a fear of strong women. That's, that, that's very interesting. Let's, let's, get, uh, let's return to uh, the, the Lebenslauf itself and get, yeah. get, get Bismarck uh, into politics. How does he, what's his first official position? His first official position, he's a delegate to the parliament, which is no parliament, called the United Diet. And that takes place just before the revolution of 1848 and 1847. And his first public speech is absolutely characteristic. He's tall. He's handsome. He's 32 years old. Uh, he's wearing light trousers, we know, because it's described. And he gets up there. And he makes a speech so outrageous that the whole of the assembly is shouting at him. And while they're shouting out at him, he pulls a newspaper out of his pocket and reads it until they calm down. The object is to stir them up. And the issue is the role of liberalism in the wars of revolution against Napoleon. And he said liberalism played no role, neither the Constitution. We had a foreign despot on our necks, and we would have been shameful if we hadn't. Um, rebelled against him. Liberalism and all that sort of stuff is nonsense, contributed nothing to it. It was the old Prussian army which got rid of Napoleon, which of course is true. And they hated him for that. That's the way he started and that's the way he went on all his career. Mm -hmm. If you provoke them, if you do something wild and extravagant, nobody will forget you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So do you think, I came away from the impression in your book that uh, actually um, Bismarck's fundamental I guess we would call them values today, really didn't evolve very much over the course of his career. Um, am I wrong about that? I think that very early on you say that, uh, or maybe I simply read into what you said, that 
You could see the, uh, the later Bismarck in the very early Bismarck. There are some things you can see. I think the most remarkable thing, and this is again something that I did, which has not been done for more than 100 years. Um, there's a fantastic story in which an American plays a key part. There was a young American called John Lothrop Motley from Boston, you know, home of the bean and the cod, where Lowell speak only to Cabots and Cabots speak only to God. And he belonged to that group. He was a Boston Brahmin, a friend of Oliver Holmes Sr. and that kind of thing. And as was quite common in the 1830s, upper-class Bostonians and also upper-class Charlestonians sent their bright young men to Germany to study the new science, the new knowledge, the new way of doing things. And so uh, Motley goes to Göttingen. And on his way, he runs into Bismarck for the first time when Bismarck was 17. And Bismarck and some pals are going on a beer tour, drinking themselves silly all across Germany. He runs into him again uh, when he finally settles in Göttingen. And he's walking down the street and he sees this large young man dressed like a, like a clown, challenging everybody, insulting everybody, dancing around with two huge dogs, making a fool of himself, but making himself prominent. And he says, that's the kid I met in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the beer hall. So they fall into conversation afterwards, and they walk back to Motley's rooms. And when they get to Motley's rooms, and I'll tell you, we know this because Motley went back to Boston in the 1830s and wrote a novel published in 1839 when he was 26 and Bismarck was 25 about the great Bismarck. But he wasn't the great Bismarck then. He was a, he was a young guy. He was so remarkable. The Otto von Robbenmark is the name. So what, what the Robbenmark character says to the Motley character in the novel, you see, I'm a very rational sort of person, and I intend to dominate these people here the way I will dominate them later in life. And when I got here, I discovered that the way to dominate them was to note that they were eccentric, savage, and undisciplined, and I decided to be more eccentric, more savage, and more undisciplined than they. And that urge to dominate doesn't come out often, but you get it in that bit of, of um, Motley's novel, which, by the way, I read, called Morton's Hope. It was in the rare book room here at the Van Pelt, luckily. And uh, it comes out at one other point, during the worst time of his career, just after he had made the blood and iron speech two days later, which nearly lost him his job. He's sitting in a restaurant with a guy who his, was his number two when he was ambassador in St. Petersburg, Kurt von Schlötzer. And Schlötzer is a smart, clever guy. And Bismarck likes smart, clever people. And Bismarck tells him what he's doing. I'm being liberal to the liberals and conservative to the conservatives. And he tells them all the acts he's playing with all these people and getting away with it. And Schlötzer said, this is some character. Now, again, the answer to your question, what were Bismarck's values? I don't no. After all this time, I wake up in the middle of the night and think, was he like this or was he like that? Was he a Christian or wasn't he a Christian? Was he anti-Semitic or wasn't he anti-Semitic? Did he actually believe in conservatism or didn't he? I don't know. What I will tell you is that many of the people who knew him well are always divided. Ludwig Bamberger, who knew him very well, uh, has a diary entry in which he says he's cruel and he's kind. He has flashing eyes and they're hooded. Um, he's gay. He's, I mean, he's cheerful. He's melancholy. And he's always thinks intermittently. But one of the things they all understand is that he's tremendously powerful. There isn't that self, just a crushing amount of power. Um, Bamberger writes, behind the smile and the charm of the speech, there is a predatory beast who will swallow you just like that. So that's, you know, he's a complicated character. That's what made him such, so fun, so much fun to write about. Yeah, he is a complicated character. I, I, I quite agree with you. He, one of the things that I took away from the book that he was a very, uh, not to put this in Americanese or psycho babble or anything, he was a very sensitive person. He, he was, he really bristled a lot. And, you know, he, one of the, we, I, so a psychologist might say he was externally tied or something like that. As you point out in the book, he's very, he's very happy. When he's with powerful people, yeah. uh, over with whom he wants to, 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 I guess, be and 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 whom he wants to influence, and when he is out of their, uh, when he's out of their ambit, he's very, he's really quite uh, depressive and 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 almost mopey, yeah. I would say. Well, yeah, he's he's a tremendous. I mean, for example, what is staggering is how many people actually loved him, General Leopold von Gerlach, who put him into power, basically suddenly discovers in the mid-1850s that Bismarck doesn't share his values. He's perfectly happy to make a deal with Napoleon III. Indeed, he considers very seriously and eventually does introduce universal suffrage into the new 
Prussian and German constitutions. And for the Gerlachs, I can't describe what that's like. They were so shocked. It's like discovering that uh, Michel Bachmann is a secret socialist, you know? <laughs> uh, that the whole Tea Party is run by people who actually are ex-members of the Communist Party. It's that kind of thing. It's, it was a tremendous shock, and it was a great pain to Leopold. And Bismarck, of course, dropped him like a stone once he stopped being useful. When Frederick William IV fell ill in 1857, that was the end of Leopold von Gerlach's usefulness to him. Count Portalis said... Bismarck treats his um, staff like uh, stage horses. You just get rid of them when you get to the next stage in your life. Or somebody, I forget exactly what it was, said Bismarck treats his ministers like Don Juan treats lovers. So he drops poor old Leopold. And there is a letter from 1860 or 1861 in which Leopold says, um, with, with my old love for you, uh, Leopold von Gerlach, and Bismarck didn't love Leopold. I don't think he cared about him. And the description of, of von Gerlach's last days is so cold. And indeed, the worst of all is the description of the death of uh, Albrecht von Rohn. Because Albrecht von Rohn is, is one of the heroes of my story. There are three. Uh, Albrecht von Rohn, the general. Uh, Ludwig Windhorst, the leader of the Catholics. And Edward Lasker, the little Jewish liberal. These are three people who come out of my book absolutely sterling. Rohn was a wonderful man. And he knew what he was doing. And he put Bismarck into power and he knew he was doing it. And he knew Bismarck's flaws, but he thought Bismarck was the only person who could solve these Prussian problems. And he was right, of course. And he drops them. Once they stop being useful, what he says about Rohn in his memoirs, and he was a typical Prussian, he doesn't say anything about how, how much he owes the guy. And that's the other side of him. On, on the other hand, when you read his letters to his sister, you read how witty and funny he is. Can I tell you a funny story? Please. Uh, as you see, I like talking about this, and you have to stop me because I'm no, in no, full no, flow. No, I wouldn't think of it. Uh, okay. Um, one of his enemies, and of course, Bismarck divides the world absolutely into friends and enemies, and one of his enemies <laughs> is, is Robert von der Goltz, who was actually a genuine enemy and a genuine rival. And Goltz was out of power, and Bismarck was an ambassador to the German Confederation in Frankfurt, a bit like being UN ambassador for Prussia. And Goltz comes to see him. And Goltz was an unpleasant character. He had a smile, which was, just, what did, what did um, Hazlitt say? Peel's smile was like the silver etiquette on a coffin. And Goltz was like that. And Goltz is bitter and complaining, and Bismarck's listening and listening. And as Goltz leaves, and he's watching Goltz cross the courtyard, one of Bismarck's huge dogs starts barking and barking and barking. And as Goltz passes by the dog, rather frightened, Bismarck shouts out of the window, Goltz, don't bite my dog. <laughs> yes. Um, that's your Bismarck. Yeah, that's quite, a, he's quite a character. So a character. how does um, somebody with these uh, unusual character traits, I, I don't know how uh, else to put it, how does he become prime minister of Prussia? He becomes prime minister of Prussia in a very simple way. Roan, who also liked Motley, knew Bismarck when he was 17, realizes this is the only guy smart enough. And I, this is why I think it's got to be a biography. You have to see how smart Bismarck is. When he was at school, for example, his school friend, Maurice von Blankenburg, said he never did any homework, but he just knew everything. And he really did know everything. Rohn knew that this guy was so smart that he would be able to do it. He was a genius. And he actually calls him a political genius when one of his friends says, you put this guy into power and he's a monster. And Rohn says, I know, but he's the only one who can solve our problems. And Rohn, when he became minister of war, from the moment he became Minister of War in 1859, as the crisis about the army and the constitutional state began to blow up, now your listeners should understand, a state, how is it described? Prussia is not a state with an army, but an army with a state in which it happens to be stationed. And now the question is, the new liberal parliamentary order, which comes in with the revolutions of 1848, they begin to feel their muscles. And they say, no more of this stuff. We want to have the army under the control of parliament, like any decent constitutional monarchy has. And the king says, under no circumstances. So the conflict gets worse. Each election, the liberals get bigger and bigger. The conservatives get smaller and smaller. And the king is about to abdicate, because he's a nice man. And he doesn't want bloodshed. 
And Roan says, no, your majesty, you have to call Bismarck. And the king says, Bismarck's a maniac. Um, my brother said Bismarck is only to be used when the bayonet rules without limit. And Roan said, he's not like that. He's very clever. And the king says, don't talk to me about Bismarck. And especially don't talk to me when my wife, Queen Augusta, can be here because she hates him. So, But it gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, the king is desperate. And Bismarck says in his memoirs that the king had written out in his own hand his abdication. Let my liberal son do this. I can't do it. And Roan says, one more time, please call Bismarck. Oh, says the king, Bismarck won't come. He's not here. And besides, he won't work for me. Yes, says Roan, he is here. I've called him. And that's the famous telegram. Uh, there's danger and delay. Get here quickly. So Bismarck is actually there. He goes to Babelsberg to the, to the king. And he tells the king what the king wants to hear. I will solve your problem. And we know what he intended to do because he told Disraeli in London in the summer, I'm going to go to Prussia. I'm going to make sure that the army is in good shape, whether the parliament likes it or not. I'm going to make a couple of wars, and that's going to unify Germany. He actually says all that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I read that the other day. It's amazing. It is breathtaking. Yeah. So, it is so breathtaking the, how plain spoken it is. Yeah. So when he's honest, he's honest in the way that nobody can believe. And when he's telling lies, he's telling lies that nobody can believe either. Amazing. Yeah. 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 No, I, I see what you're saying. And you know, it, it, um, I, I, we will talk about this later. I have no doubt about it, but it reminds me of some other, uh, German statesman who said things, uh, and people didn't believe him. And, uh, then he did them. And, uh, but we'll, we'll come to that in good time. That, that German statesman is 180 degrees the opposite. That mm-hmm. German statesman had one idea from 1919 to mm-hmm. the moment he committed suicide. He never changed a single idea. No, that's true. I don't actually know what Bismarck actually Yeah. Said. No, I, I, I certainly, I certainly see what you mean. Now, so, one of the, the things on his agenda, if we can speak of his agenda, yeah. is, is the unification of Germany. And this idea had been in the air for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So how, why, is, why unify Germany? What is the point? Why, does, why, does, why is it uh, so, so – um, they know it will be destabilizing. They know that it will cause bloodshed. Um, and they don't know that uh, Prussia will uh, end up on top because of Austria. And so it's a gamble in that way. So well, why the push to do it? Yeah, it is a gamble. And Bismarck said, I spent my whole life gambling for high stakes with other people's money, which is what politics <laughs> is like. Way to do it. And, and, I mean, you see how brilliant that is? I spent my whole life gambling for high stakes with other people's money. And that is exactly right. He was always conscious. And when, after, after one of the battles, he thinks about the young men lying there dead and said, my Herbert could be among them. I mean, he was also a remark, you know, I, sometimes I like him and sometimes I can't stand him, but I'm never bored. Anyway, so what is the idea? Okay, start by imagining a country which in 1789 had 3,000 large and small little tiny entities like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. The Napoleonic War reduces them to 39. But there are still 39 little independent states with their princes, with their borders, with their customs duties, with their little armies, with their squabbles. And in the middle of this, you have a larger one, which is growing steadily stronger and happens to be sitting on the finest coal and iron reserves in Europe. And it's industrializing to get from uh, Berlin to the West provinces of Prussia. You have to pass through four or five different entities. Now, there is a customs union, yes, but they're politically independent. It's not a healthy environment for a national state in the 19th century. Besides, Bismarck doesn't pay any attention to these people because he's not a real conservative. He calls the, 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 the smaller monarchs and dukes and princes in Germany a sovereignty swindle which doesn't uh, uh, please the recipient of this, who's one of these classic conservatives. So the idea is to clear all these people away and get them out and unify all of them and swallow them up and make one big Prussian kingdom, which is actually what he's doing. He's helped on the way by circumstances over which he has no control, most important of which is the revolution of 1848 produces a republic in France, and that turns into a Napoleonic monarchy with Napoleon III on the throne. And Napoleon III is bound by his heritage to upset the balance of power. That helps Bismarck because it's Napoleon who basically destroys Austria in the War of 1859. Mm -hmm. That makes life a lot simpler for Bismarck. Then there's the Crimean War. And in the Crimean War, the Russians lose. And the Russians have a peasant revolt. And Alexander II says we've got to modernize. So the Russians withdraw for 15 years from politics. They don't interfere because they can't. So Austria has been weakened, Russia has been weakened, Napoleon is unstable, and Bismarck knows he can outsmart him. So the circumstances are ideal, and they did not occur again. The third circumstance is that for the only time I can think of, between 1848 and 1870, roughly, it was possible to govern 
Prussia really with a with a, a constituency of one. As long as William I did what Bismarck wanted him to do, and he always did, Bismarck could run the country. Now, what he couldn't do is run the army because he was not a soldier and the army wouldn't let him. In fact, they didn't want to give him any uniforms either. He made such a fuss when he was ambassador in St. Petersburg that his friend Roan got Monteufel to get him a uniform as a major, a rank he never had, in a rather obscure regiment. And they didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So here is Bismarck now. He's got the king on his side. And he knows that the king understands that he will do it. So what you have to do is to find pretexts. And the first of the pretexts is the, the, the Schleswig-Holstein question. Yep. Now, the Schleswig-Holstein question, which I actually do understand. <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, um, I know you do. <laughs> Tom, Thomerson once said, nobody understands the Schleswig-Holstein question. But one, three people did. One is dead, one is mad, and I have forgotten. But basically, it was about whether you could inherit the throne down the male line or the female line only, and that had complications. And Bismarck knew that because all the European powers were involved here, it was very, very easy to provoke a war. And, of course, the Danes were silly enough to provoke it, and the Austrians and the Prussians go in there, and they defeat the Danes. And once they defeat the Danes... Bismarck has the Austrians in his power because they've got involved in the war, which is not in their interest. It's hundreds of miles away from Vienna, and they've got an army up there. And then it's just a question of time before Bismarck finds a way to provoke a war with them. Mm -hmm. The other thing which Bismarck had no control over was the fact that William I was the only Prussian monarch, I think, with the self-confidence to let his... Uh, minister president, his prime minister, run politics and give the command power to the greatest general of the 19th century after Napoleon, Helmut von Moltke. Mm-hmm. And Helmut von Moltke becomes chief of the, of the Prussian general staff in 1857, and he transforms the army. He makes it railway-born. Uh, he des- designs his systems and he works the railroad uh, timetables in such a way that he can move armies across the country from different angles and bring them together at the same point. Getrennt marschieren, gemeinsam schlagen is the thing. Um, march separately, fight together. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that when Bismarck goes into this, he's got somebody who is as good as he is running the army. Mm-hmm. And between Bismarck and Moltke, they win the wars, but my God, they're close things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I say in the book, there is a moment at the Battle of Königgrätz in which if Ludwig Benedict had listened to his Hungarian commander, they had the flanks of the Prussians open because Frederick William, the crown prince's second army, hadn't arrived. Mm-hmm. A flank attack they would have lost and the history of the world would have been different. Mm-hmm. But it didn't, and it happened. Mm-hmm. How did he um, maneuver? Let's talk just briefly about these two wars um, that I think many people will remember uh, from their Western civilization classes. Because <laughs> Yes. Uh, how did he maneuver um, the Austrians and then the French into uh, these conflicts? Well, he, he maneuvered the Austrians because the Austrians were disciples of Metternich. And that meant no revolutions, everything must be done properly. So when the Danes started acting up, Bismarck could say to the Austrians, look, we have to maintain order in Central Europe. We're conservative powers. We can't allow another German state, that is the Augustenburg, the, uh, Augustenburg family, to take over Schleswig and Holstein. They'll be liberal and they'll cause us a lot of trouble. And the Austrians say, yeah, that's right. So the Austrians and the Prussians go together. They provoke a war with the Danes. They then go to the great powers who are meeting in London to, uh, to enforce the London Treaty of 1852 and says the Danes have broken the treaty. We are now free of that. We're going to do what we like. So they defeat the Danes jointly, and then they divide up the two duchies, Schleswig and Holstein. The Prussians take Schleswig, and the, and the Austrians take Holstein. Well, the Prussians want Schleswig, but the Austrians can't use Holstein. It's hundreds of miles away from their core of um, territories. And Bismarck, as soon as they're into Schleswig, he starts converting it into a Prussian province. And the Austrians say, you're not allowed to do that. And Bismarck says, stop me. Friction mounts. And at various stages, he provokes the Austrians into a war. Then he can't fight the war because he hasn't got the money, but eventually he does provoke them in 1866 because they suddenly realize they've been caught in a trap. And they in turn say, okay, we, we, Bismarck's betrayed us. We'll get all the rest of Germany against them. So they go to the, back to Frankfurt and they try to stir the rest of the small states up against Bismarck, which is just what he wants. And he says, right, too bad. Time for war. And, um, they provoke it. He gets them to provoke it. And that's how the first war starts. And once the first war starts, he unifies and defeats them quickly in six weeks. Uh, Germany is unified down to the river Main. And then it's just a question of finding a pretext 
for war with France. And he does that because he knows only war with France will arouse such patriotic fervor that the southern states will not be able to resist independence and they'll have to go in with the Prussians and fight that war. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. So the first eight years, he accomplishes precisely, but precisely, eight years, no, eight years to the day is what he told Disraeli he was going to do in the summer of 1862. Mm-hmm. And he declares in, in, in 1871, I think he, he, he is part of the party that declares that the, the Second Reich, that, that is the, and, and, and Wilhelm is um, crowned emperor. What, what does that mean exactly, emperor? Well, that's tricky. William didn't want to be emperor. He wanted to be king of Prussia. We have an emperor, he said, and he's the emperor of Austria. And the popular masses wanted to see the the king of Prussia elevated to a higher rank. Mm -hmm. And what the king wanted was to be emperor of Germany. And Bismarck had made a deal with the Bavarians who didn't want the king to be emperor of anything, that he would be called German emperor. And there was a huge row between Bismarck and his, what I think is his surrogate father, and I think the relationship is between father and son, when you, the hysteria, the shouts, the fighting, the, uh, the depressions, the fact that they're both sick and have to go to bed after these rows, it's a family battle of a, mm-hmm. of a certain kind. He convinces the king that he's got to do it, and the king is in tears. His historic title is King of Prussia, not this newfangled German emperor stuff. And, of course, he doesn't even tell the, the queen that she's about to become an empress, and the crown prince doesn't like it either. So on the day of the crowning, which takes place in the Hall of Mirrors, and he's so improvised that the crown prince suddenly notices is that everybody's in fatigues. They're not in dress uniform. They're wearing their boots, and they have their combat hats on. And nobody's given the orders. He gets up and says, hats off. So they take their hats off. Bismarck reads the proclamation, and he is so furious with the king that he reads it in a tremendously cold way. The king is so furious with Bismarck that when he comes down, now crowned emperor, German emperor, he cuts Bismarck dead, doesn't speak to him. And they don't talk to each other for several weeks because they're so angry with each other. But they always come back together because, as the king says, it is my greatest joy to be of one opinion with you. I mean, he loved, he loved Bismarck, there's no question about it. So um, the second part of the book, and really more than the second half, uh, begins with a chapter, and I was very interested in this, the decline begins. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, in 1871, he's a national hero. That's right. Correct. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's really a very he's a he's a superstar. Yeah, he's a superstar. Yeah, and and but but at that point, uh, I guess it's all downhill, or it's down. and it's downhill because Bismarck has a new problem that he actually cannot figure out how to solve. Now he's ruling a whole country, and he won't share power with anybody. So he is uh, he's the chancellor of the Reich, of, of, of the Germany, and he's the prime minister of Prussia, and he doesn't want cabinet ministers, and he doesn't want representative government, and doesn't want the parties represented, and he doesn't really want any aid either, because he does it all himself. Now, you cannot run a modern state like that, and things start to go wrong, including the impact on his health. I mean, imagine this. In 1880, Bismarck resigns. I mean, he resigned about 20 times in the course of <laughs> I've got a record back, back. I think it's about 1820. I mean, he resigned all the time. He resigns because the little states in the upper house, the federal council, have voted against a bill to put stamp duty on postal transfers. Are you with me? Hello, audience. Stamp duty, you know, a tax on postal transfers. If you go to a post office and transfer money, you have to pay tax. Yeah. Now, that is not an earth-shaking uh, issue. But Bismarck turns it into a crisis. It goes in the paper. I'm resigning because the, nobody will listen to me anymore. My job is impossible. And he does this all the time over these absolutely tiny things. And the real problem is that he cannot find a way to run this country, these two countries simultaneously as a federal system. And I guess what American um, listeners have to think about, he's like the, he's like the president, in fact, because he's the executive. Hey, he's the one who's really running this, the, the federal government. But he's also running the biggest single federal state. So he's running the federal government at the same time that he's governor of California combined with Texas. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. And he won't delegate. And he mis- insists on taking all the decisions himself until he's, until 1875 on his, gosh, it's his 60th birthday. He's never had a proper personal aid. He doesn't have staff. Nothing can happen without Bismarck's permission. He complains about the, the, 
the head teacher of a teacher training college in East Prussia because this guy is a Catholic, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so he drives himself and everybody around him crazy. But yes, yeah, so so the place is more or less ungovernable in that style. That's it's, really the it's ungovernable, and the longer he stays, the more ungovernable it becomes. And by 1887, you see the other thing he did, which is I think one of those uh, law of unexpected consequences. He, in order to outflank the princes, and Bismarck's technique is always to have two strategies, a good and a bad alternative strategy. In order to outflank the princes in all the um, small states. In 1863, he declares that Prussia will only join a union with universal manhood suffrage because he thinks, look what Napoleon III showed us. The peasants vote for their lords. No problem. The problem with, with Prussia is that by 1870, it's industrializing so rapidly that you wouldn't recognize it. When Engels comes back to Prussia for the first time, he said, it's completely transformed. By the 1880s, you've got a large Catholic party. You have a large socialist party. You have all kinds of industrial workers. You have strikes. And Bismarck, by 1887, realized that this system isn't going to work. The enemies control the parliament. So he decides, well, it's been a compact of the princes. We'll dissolve it. Mm-hmm. He's going to undo his work because it doesn't, it doesn't function anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, he attempts to control these new forces, uh, and uh, he, not only new forces. Uh, the new force would be uh, socialist parties that later became very large. And then, of course, the, the anti-Catholic, the uh, Kulturkampf. Can you talk just a little bit about those? Yeah. The Kulturkampf is, is, is a really big mistake. Um, Bismarck is faced with a very large absolutely unshakable Roman Catholic party run by Bismarck's nemesis, a tiny little half-blind Hanoverian lawyer who is the greatest parliamentarian of the day and the only person who can outsmart and outjoke and outwitty and outmaneuver Bismarck in Parliament. He's a kind of miracle. And he hates Vintorst because Vintorst is the only person who makes him look ridiculous, <laughs> um, which, he, which he's really, really good at. And so it's, it's partly that. It's also partly because he's really afraid stuff will fall apart. The southern states are Catholic. There's a large Catholic um, presence in Europe. What if the French Catholic state and the Austrian Catholic state get together and they attack Prussia, which is not inconceivable. So he decides, first of all, to try to separate the Catholic party from the Pope. And that is possible for a while in the 1870s because Pius IX is a very, very, very strong and very, very conservative pope. And he doesn't like parliamentary parties anyway. But it doesn't work. And so Bismarck runs into a head-on struggle with the Catholics. And it's about stuff that is, in America, very familiar. Separation of church and state, secular schools, secular divorce, um, secular nurses in hospitals, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, Bismarck attacks not only the Catholics, but his own social class, because they are Protestant conservatives, and they don't want secular states, and they don't want schools which are run by lay people. They don't want the state to interfere in civil divorce and civil marriage. So Bismarck, with a large liberal majority behind him, attacks not only the Catholics, but he attacks his own former allies. And they both back gang up against him, and in the end, he fails. The Kulturkampf is a failure. He doesn't accomplish what he wants, and he has to get out of it. And the way he gets out of it, of course, is there's a depression. During the depression, free trade and liberalism is discredited. People want protection and tariffs. And he makes a deal with the Catholics, and they make a deal with the conservatives to pass tariffs, and that gets rid of the liberals. And then he's, he has to struggle with balancing the Catholics versus the conservatives and the conservatives versus the Catholics because he never has his own party. So he never has a party really to speak of in, in parliament. Now, can you talk a little bit about his attempt to deal with the um, rising working class parties, the SPD? Yes, he does the same thing there. On the one hand, and I've been criticized for this, and I think in, in some sense it is fair, because I, I did not spend much time on the famous social legislation. Bismarck introduces in three bills, 1881, 84, 89, um, unemployment, invalid, and sickness insurance. This is the first welfare state in Europe. It's contributory pension system, exactly like Social Security, and they are by far the first. What Bismarck does in the 1880s, he's got... He's got this legislation in place, but what he doesn't want is the Socialist Party. So at the same time he passes this wonderful welfare legislation, he also passes an anti-socialist law, which is that anybody propagating socialist um, doctrines, etc., etc., 
They can't have newspapers. They can't have this, that, and the other thing. But what he forgets to do, because he can't do everything, he forgets to outlaw the presence of socialists in parliament so they can still get elected, even though they can't meet, they can't have parties, they can't have a newspaper. And as it goes on, time passes, the working class votes socialists more and more and more. So by the time he falls, the socialists are already, in terms of votes, the largest party in Germany, and the Catholics are second. So the enemies of the Reich have a majority of the Reich votes, and he can't stop that. I see. So, you know, as you point out, we're, we're just about out of time here. I've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I have... Um, it's, it's a pleasure. I, I, you can see I like talking about yeah, this. Yeah, no, no. And you, you, you speak very, very well about this subject. Uh, and I, I encourage people, obviously, to go buy the book because it's... Buy the book. Buy it's the book. Ju- well, it's just as, you know, it's just as, as, as witty and clever as you are uh, speaking. It's just <laughs> that way written. But I, there are a couple of topics um, that, yeah, that, sure. I, that, I, that I want to touch on. Um, one is uh, the, the kind of peculiar relationship that Bismarck has with uh, Jews. And uh, I... I I, I just found myself scratching my head a lot about it. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? I scratch my head too. Because like Bismarck's Christianity, I don't know. I mean, Bismarck had the habitual anti-Semitic remarks and observations of the whole of that class. Now, this is a really big subject, which I can't do yeah. in 60 seconds. But I would put it this way. For the Juncker class, the Jews represented uh, mobile capital. Money. Mm-hmm. And money threatened them because money is much richer than uh, impoverished uh, rural gentry. And they didn't want their estates being sold to Jews and other capitalists. And because of Germany's development, and particularly Prussia, the Jews monopolized capitalism. Practically all the private banks and all the brokers and all the stockbrokers were Jews. Mm-hmm. After 1873, when the Great Depression of the 1870s begins, the Jews get blamed. And Bismarck uses this. I mean, Bismarck actually had a whole series of quite close um, Jewish uh, ministers and confidants and all that. I do not actually think Bismarck was anti-Semitic, but he thought anti-Semitism would be a tremendously useful device to make life difficult for the liberals, who were, of course, very much dependent on Jewish money and smart Jewish people. And Edward Lasker, who was the intellectual leader of these groups was a a little, absolutely fearless Jewish parliamentarian who was no respecter of persons, and Bismarck hated him, the same reason that he hated the Vintors. Lasker was often outsmarting him. So I think anti-Semitism is rooted in Germany and in Prussia for all sorts of reasons. But in a way, Bismarck uses it. He makes it worse, but I don't think he causes it. Mm -hmm. No, I see what you mean. So let me ask a a final question about Bismarck. Uh, It may sound to your ears somewhat silly, what, what was Bismarck's uh, legacy? And I want to answer that in kind of two parts. One in the medium to short term, that is to say for the next, after he was, uh, after he left power, 10, 20, 30 years through World War II. And then w- what is his legacy today? Yeah. Um, what is his legacy? His legacy is to leave a void. Um, and that is not just me. The great Max Weber, founder of sociology, says he left a void. He uh, accustomed the German people to want to be led by a genius, and that he was a genius, there's no doubt. Ordinary politics were destroyed because Bismarck could not put up with enemies, so he smashed them. Mm -hmm. So his legacy was to produce a ramshackle constitutional system, which only he could run, and by the end of his tenure, not even he. And he bequeathed this to a very, very irresponsible, unstable young emperor who wanted to be Frederick the Great. That led to all kinds of catastrophes, including the first World War. The longer-term legacy, oddly enough, I don't know. But, and I think I will find that out when this book appears in Germany. I could have told you 30 years ago. 30 years ago, Bismarck was the good guy. He was the wise statesman, the person who said Germany is a saturated state. We don't engage in wars. We don't want to do any of these. Others can fight wars. We are Pacific, all that kind of stuff. He was the wise diplomat. He was the person who set the social stage. And he was held up, in effect, to as a contrast to the Weimar Republic, which was a disaster, and also in some ways to the very boring Federal Republic of Germany after 1945. So Bismarck was heroic until probably the student troubles of the 1860s and, and the 1960s and early 1970s. And I remember Manuel Geis writing an, an article in one of the papers saying, Opa's monarchy is tot, grandpa's monarchy is dead, which is, of course, Bismarck. And so with, with that, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know what they think about him now. I think he doesn't appear anymore. And we'll find out when the book comes out. Yeah, I, I, I'm very glad to hear you say that because I was 
um, trained in an era in which the image that you just sketched of Bismarck was quite the one that I learned. And uh, I, I admired him. Um, I, I had not seen a deep psychological portrait of him before because it had not been written by you, namely. But I must say that upon reading the book, I'm, um, I think I'm much less an admirer of Bismarck uh, and I'm uh, much uh, more, how should I say, uh, hesitant to praise his achievements um, given what happened after he left. I'm, it, it's funny because it's often the case that Russian rulers uh, are, are accused of trying to maintain a political system that was really quite bankrupt and therefore they bequeath to their uh, followers a situation which was unmanageable. But it seems to me that, um, as you just said, that Bismarck did just this. I think he did. And I, one of the things I was thinking about lately, <clears throat> because I have to give a talk um, fairly soon at the Institute of Historical Research on his biography, Proper History. And the, the uh, character I would choose, I'm sure you would agree with me, nobody has changed the 20th century more than Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. yeah. One man. It's astonishing yeah, what no, it is. a yeah. person can still do in our world of mass society. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. No, you're, you're quite right about that. I, I you know, I, I guess um, I would, I would hope that the discussion there is very short, if that's the question, <laughs> <laughs> and then we can move on to more productive things. Um, so l let me uh, let me close by just thanking you for being on the show, Jonathan. It's a terrific book, and, and I'm, I really hope that people go out and read it. There's a lot to be learned here. It's very witty and clever, and you're a very good writer, and um, it's it's wonderful material. And I, I got to imagine that uh, it was great fun to write the book because it's great fun to read. Let me close the interview by asking you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? I have a project which is so crazy, I scarcely dare to uh, mention it. You can't but wait I, to hear it. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm working on a thing called the Ricardo Project, which is an account of how David Ricardo's very odd system, which Keynes thought no sane man could think this was, uh, was, was viable, how David Ricardo's economic system transformed Adam Smith's ideas into the Victorian uh, iron law of wages mm -hmm. and allowed Victorianism to um, to develop in the way it did. Nobody's done this. I think there was a conspiracy between James Mill, John Stuart Mill's father, and James Buchanan to suppress Morpheus's principles of economics and Say's principles of economics because they didn't have this result. And the result was no state can improve the working class's conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's what Ricardo did. And the Ricardo project was a kind of detective story. And uh, I'm quite keen to, to do it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's always good to have an unanswered question when you begin <laughs> research. <laughs> At least that's, that's the kind of stuff I like to do. You yep. know, yeah. So anyway, Jonathan, I want to, again, thank you for being on the show. The book is uh, Bismarck, A Life uh, by Jonathan Steinberg. Um, thanks for your time today. And thank you for, as they say on these programs, thank you for having me. Thank you for putting up with me because <laughs> no. once, I, once I start talking, I can't stop. <laughs> well, and we, we really enjoyed listening to you. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jonathan Steinberg about his new book, Bismarck, A Life. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.